Hello, Michael Nemo here as always, the author and, mm, I guess, podcaster of the podcast Around Serie A in 20 Days. Without much further ado, let's get into it. So today is the chapter when I went to see Juventus. Enjoy. Ciao, ciao. Hen's teeth coated in gold dust. My trip to try and watch Juventus play Fiorentina. Many moons ago, Theodore Roosevelt said, Far better is it to dare mighty things, to win glorious triumphs, even though checkered by failure, than to rank with those poor spirits who neither enjoy nor suffer much because they live in a grey twilight that knows not victory nor defeat. Back when I was a lad, you know, when you could leave your front door unlocked, it was orange trees as far as the eye could see, and the only time you'd hear the word internet was when someone from Yorkshire was describing a goal, there was something about Juventus that stuck in my craw. Actually, I tell a lie, not at first there wasn't. My earliest experience of them was when they humped Rangers in the Champions League, Del Piero, just a young Tyro back then, scoring free kicks for fun. This, if anything, slipped down my craw like a delicious come-up-and-tasting drink. No, it wasn't until a few years later, when Football Italia became part of my life, that what could be described as antipathy was born. I remember being in my grandpa's house one Sunday, sitting in his wood-panelled living room and Edgar Davids running about. You couldn't see the number on the back of his strip, because for some reason their strip that year was the classic black and white stripes, but with red numbers on the back that were nigh-on unidentifiable. I'm afraid that that's about as far as that anecdote goes. I'd love to say that my grandpa said something wise or witty, causing us all to laugh and nod knowingly, but all I remember is UV on the telly and everything smelling like pipe smoke. But anyway, it was clear it was Davids because A, he was scuttling about the centre circle kicking people, and B, he was the black guy with dreadlocks and funny glasses. Over time, watching Juventus started to remind me of watching the dreaded Rangers of my youth. They could huff and puff and be outplayed for the best part of the match, but you just kind of knew that they'd win somehow. This is of course a much-desired gift and the mark of champions, as the cliché goes, but something about it turned me off. I don't consider myself a masochist, although until now I guess I've built up a pretty compelling pile of evidence for the prosecution to hold against me on that score, but winning so frequently struck me as being a bit dull. On top of that, the majority of Juve supporters aren't from Turin. Meanwhile, watch a Rangers match and you'll likely see St George's crosses being waved in and among the crowd, which leads me to conclude that some of their fans are either antagonistic twats or aren't from Glasgow, or a foul combination of the two. My formative years of Scottish football were a competition-free zone. <laughs> what, unlike now, I hear you splutter with incredulity? And as a byproduct of Rangers winning everything and 50% of my primary school class supporting them, I built quite a healthy disregard for them. Then, pile on top of that, their fans' insistence on singing Rule Britannia and God Save the Queen in Scotland, and you have my case against them. I'd just like to point out here that I'm not a spittle-flecked nationalist, but do consider myself Scottish rather than British. Just because Han Solo, Chewbacca and Yoda all work together doesn't mean they had the same background, ideals or plans for the future. They were, however, all united against the Empire and its evilness. And that's how I viewed Rangers. The force of bad in the universe of Scottish football. 
and I was only small and had relatively narrow horizons. If they could have built a blue, red and white version of the Death Star, I'm sure they would have, and then hovered it menacingly over Parkhead. A few years later, Celtic would go on to take that role, thus cementing their place in the empire of Glaswegian teams too. Thankfully, it doesn't seem likely that either Partick Thistle or Queen's Park will join them. Indeed, I dare say that if Obi-Wan Kenobi was a Ouija, he'd live in Mary Hill and watch the Jags. If we leave Star Wars analogies in a galaxy far, far away, one thing that Juventus have going for them that Rangers don't is an absence of petty religious intolerance getting dressed up as football. That's not even up for discussion in Italy, as in Europe it's near the top of the table of monotheistic states. So, yeah, Rangers equals Juventus equals Rangers equals Juventus. I've already touched on this in the chapter I wrote about Atalanta, but I still don't really understand where people find the repeat pleasure in supporting a team as all-dominant as Juventus. I understand why people would be drawn to them, the instant fix of satisfaction and glory, the Coca-Cola, if you like, of Italian football teams. But wouldn't you prefer some fruit juice, or its equivalent team? A little Parma, perhaps? Or how about a daily dose of Udinese? It might be good for you in the long term, you'll probably be healthier for it, and for those chasing a quick hit, time it right, and it could be lovely and sweet in the here and now too. Some years after my grandpa's death, my dad and I went to see his team Albion Rovers. For those eagle-eyed, you may have noticed that my surname isn't classically Scottish. My grandpa had looked into it, and it seemed to have been brought over from France by Huguenots who were escaping religious persecution. Unfortunately for their descendants, some of them ended up in Cope Bridge, which, although I've never been, my dad assures me is a sectarian armpit of a town. It's this armpit that Albion Rovers hail from. Cope Bridge is a predominantly Catholic town, and is near enough Glasgow that it's easy for most of its inhabitants to support Celtic. My grandpa, though, bless him, was a Rovers fan. So it was that my dad and I found ourselves going to Berwick, to see the original Rangers, and much more legitimately English than the team from Glasgow, play Albion Rovers. As could be expected from a match in the third division in Scotland, it was shite. But it was my dad and his dad's shite. I'm far too disconnected from Coatbridge to feel anything for it or its team, but for my dad, Albion Rovers was a way to connect with his dad. To say that it was a spiritual journey to the edge of Scotland would be a bit highfalutin, and I don't think that my grandpa would have had any of that. I still remember when my dad and I went to the pub to see my grandpa one day, and he introduced my dad to his friends as, This is Tommy, he went to uni. This was met with impressed faces and fucking uni responses, as if they'd just heard he'd got back from Mars. Albion Rovers, whose website proclaims them to be the best team in Cope Bridge, which is a bit like me claiming to be the best horse whisperer in my flat, have had a long and painful history of not being much cop. I know this has nothing to do with Juventus, who have had a long history of actually winning stuff, but bear with me here. Art Aaron, a worldwide leader in the field of research into relationships, started working on the idea in the 60s that relationships of all kinds involve including the other in the idea of yourself. This can be true of relationships between people, owners and their pets, particularly dedicated employees in their company, fans and teams, whatever you like really. It follows that if your team does well, you as a fan feel some kind of pride. It's entirely vicarious, but most fans will notice the feeling the day after a cup final or derby win. 
Despite the hangover, the heads held up a little higher and there's an overwhelming urge to talk about what happened. You did nothing, but you feel proud of your team. And as you've partially meshed, your team and yourself feel some of the reflected glory. This feeling comes from your brain's reward system, which, given its title, does pretty much exactly what you'd expect. You do something satisfying, and your brain gives you a figurative pat on the back. This comes in the form of a release of the chemical dopamine, and as we all have different interests and pleasures, is most universally found when people fall deeply in love, take cocaine, or, yes, you guessed it, celebrate their team's success. This area is deep in one of the oldest parts of the brain, and so has been with us for most of our evolution. Without it, our long-distant ancestors, while they were still scuttling about between rocks, wouldn't have learned as quickly what was good and bad. Good equals pleasure, bad equals none, or getting killed. And therefore, wouldn't have evolved as quickly as we did, if at all. When you receive something pleasurable, your brain dumps a shot of dopamine into your system, which makes you happy. To expand on what was good or bad for our ancestors, warmth and a full stomach equals good, while chattering teeth and a rumbling belly equals bad. Despite saying that Albion rovers aren't very good, they do have supporters. Not many, granted, but some. But if they're shite, presumably their fans don't get much pleasure from them. Apart from a feeling of local or team pride, what keeps a fan turning up at Clifton Hill? Rather than some emotion-based reason, the science suggests it's all the fault of the brain. Stupid brain. See, the dopamine release is connected to two factors, drive and memory. The stronger the dopamine surge, the bigger the impact it has on our memory, so it's easier to remember the circumstances in which you felt that big reward. And we're normally motivated to try and get that high again, which is the drive part. Think about it. If you support a team and go and watch them regularly, this could be applied to your first match experience. You went and had a good time, either with friends, for the atmosphere, or for the match. And this means hello sweet dopamine, which is the reward. In the following days, you then thought about what you had seen or felt, and they were positive thoughts. This is the memory. And as a result, you look forward to going back. This is the drive. But again, if your team's bobbins, then presumably you get bored of waiting for the shot of dopamine. This is where our brain gets crafty though. After the first time, it starts to set odds. It's like a bookie in the sense that the more unexpected the victory, the greater the euphoria if it comes in. It predicts that, for example, Man United against West Brom will be a home win. So in the Man United fans' brains, a goal for them would be more or less expected, and while being good, it wouldn't be the most euphoric moment of the season. In the 2013-2014 season, West Brom went to Old Trafford and won for the first time since 1978. The Baggies fans' brains must have been in cartwheels with the amount of dopamine surging through them. They got a big reward when they weren't expecting it, and their brains were marking this down as a moment to remember. Our brains are like drug dealers and bookies all wrapped up in one. They want us to keep coming back to score, but as we do so, they reduce our hit. So, that's what might keep an Albion Rovers fan going back for beyond just habit. The hit they get from winning a cup match against higher league opposition or getting promoted could be enough to keep them hooked for a while. If your team's given a penalty in the first minute against the worst team in the league and you score, you're happy, but probably not punching the air and running onto the pitch. 
If your team's given a penalty in the last minute in a derby and you score, you're liable to kiss the stranger standing in front of you and name any future child after the goal scorer. That's the dopamine. So, given that Juventus are the most successful club in Italy, the average Juventino's brain is giving them pretty short odds of euphoria for most games. Theodore Roosevelt summed it up in his quote at the start of this chapter, and he'd shuffled off his mortal coil before they'd even hit their stride of domination. So, what does a real-life Juventino say about it? What was the trigger? Luckily, I have one. Here's Fabio. Now that he's in, what does being a Juventino mean to him? Despite saying this, he went on to add that he didn't feel all that connected to the players. You might expect someone who's a strong supporter of a team to fall for some player or another, but Calcio aside, Fabio was pretty sanguine about the whole thing. I'd spoken to Fabio a month or so before I went to see his team, 
and he'd warned me that it might be difficult to get a ticket. I didn't really imagine it'd be as difficult as he was making out, and my schedule was pretty fully booked, as obviously with so many games to watch, and with a desire to have some semblance of a life, I'd made my own mini-calendar to keep me right, and make sure that come May the 18th I hadn't forgotten anyone. The game I'd plumped for watching Juventus was against Fiorentina. It's an important match, and so I figured that it'd be popular, but that getting my hands on a ticket wouldn't be too much of a Herculean task. As it came to be, I ended up as disappointed as an alien fan who'd had high hopes for Prometheus. And so it was that having checked for the date that tickets would go on general sale online, I was sitting at my computer at 9.55 the Monday morning before the match, coffee in one hand and victory cigarette rolled and stowed behind my ear. Such is my intoxicatingly paradoxical blend of dedication and lack of accuracy, I'd actually been at the computer since 8.55 because I made a mistake over the time of the tickets going on sale. Still, better to be early rather than late, as Italians never say. To get you in the mood, and given that Italians often tell stories in the present tense, let's inject some drama. As the clock ticks down to zero hour, I waggle my fingers in preparation for some nimble clicking and field filling in. A thin bead of sweat trickles down my temple, as outside a dog barks in the early morning haze before doing a shit in my street that will again go unscooped by its owner. Somewhere else, everyone else is spending their time in a more constructive way than me. My eyes flick towards the clock on my computer. It's go time. I figuratively leap into action. The coffee's still in my hand, so it's really more of a lean. Having selected the section I want to sit in, I put in my personal details. Name, check. Date of birth, check. Place of birth, check. Wait a second for the next page to load. But it doesn't. It won't. The page has crashed. Repeat the process. Same result. Della Sol rapped at three's the magic number. R rather than actually believing it, I think they just wanted to stress that there were three of them and they were good. Unfortunately, third time's neither lucky nor magical for me here. After going through the above process again, I met with the message, no tickets remaining. A lone scream pierces the morning air when I realised that in my distracted state I'd lit the cigarette before stowing it behind my ear. Far from it being a glorious cigarette of victory, it morphs into a sad cigarette of defeat. Ticketless to boot. Monday, Monday, so good to me, my arse. I might not get to see them play, but... If I had a look at the stadium, you'd forgive me, right? As I didn't hear any dissenting voices at the time of writing this, I figured that'd be my plan of action, just this once. Plus, going to Turin would allow me to catch up with a friend and abuse her hospitality, two of my favourite things to do. The day before the match that I wouldn't see, I set off for Turin. I figured that if I got there in the early afternoon, it'd give me time to go and do the Juventus Stadium tour, then get back into the centre in time to watch a bit of rugby and drink some beer. First thing to note here is that just as most Juventini don't live in Turin, in a quaint reflection, their stadium is as close to not actually being in Turin as seems possible. It took a good while on a bus from the centre that passed through the various ethnic zones of the city before dropping me off by a barren road that would lead me to a shopping centre and the stadium. On getting there, I was met by, at a rough estimate, 50% of the male inhabitants of the south of Italy. They were all short, had flashy chains and sunglasses on, and spoke a dialect that I didn't recognise. 
more importantly, they were all in front of me in the queue for the museum and stadium tour. For nigh on 35 minutes, I waited patiently, feeling like Gulliver on Lilliput. While there, one of the guys who had started behind me, but had miraculously appeared in front of me, said that he'd been on a coach for 17 hours to get there, which is either pretty impressive dedication or truly terrible navigating. After shuffling forward a bit and reasserting myself in front of him with a neat overtaking manoeuvre on a corner, years playing driving computer games playing off richly, as they inevitably would have, plus he waited 17 hours he could wait his turn, I got close enough to see a sign that said the stadium tour was sold out for the day. Gah! Balls! I wasn't in a great mood by this point, and although I was a little intrigued to see how many championships the museum would claim Juventus had won, and how it had covered the Calciopoli scandal, I instead turned around and made my way to find a pint and my chum in that order. But seriously, bloody hell. No tickets for the match, and then not even a ticket to look at an empty stadium. Upon reflection, and this may come across as grasping at straws to a certain extent, but given the distance between the stadium and the bus stop, I did get about 30 minutes marching in the sun, so it wasn't a total write-off. Just in case it wasn't already abundantly clear, U of A have a lot of fans. The most in the country, in fact. On top of this, or rather, perhaps by way of explanation of this, they're also the most successful club in the country. They've won the league 30 times, the Coppa Italia 9 times, and the Supercoppa 6 times, all of which are records. Then, on the European and World stages, they've won the Champions League twice, three UEFA Cups, the Cup Winners' Cup once, and two UEFA Super Cups and Intercontinental Cups. Some UEFA fans may try and pull me up where I state that they've only won Serie A 30 times at time of writing, now it's actually 31, as they had two titles stripped following the Calciopoli scandal. As a result, in some people's very one-eyed eyes, they're on 32 Scudetti, but that's a thoroughly boring conversation. So's Calciopoli, actually. So if this is the first time you've heard about it, in brief, Juventus officials and those of other teams too were accused and found guilty of years of manipulation and intimidation. That's your lot regarding that particular sordid story. But don't worry, Italian football had another one brewing in the form of Calcio Scomese. Actually, wait a moment, it's not quite all. Juventus fans who bleat about being victims of a conspiracy are irritatingly unaware of how ironic that is. It's getting caught with your hands in the till, then complaining that other people do it too. Grow up and accept responsibility, chaps. Juventus go by a number of nicknames, most famous perhaps being La Vecchia Signora, the old lady. The significantly less imaginative Bianconeri, black and whites, also does the trick, but my favourite has to be Igobi, the hunchbacks. When I first heard that, I assumed it was because other teams didn't like them, and so gave them a nickname most commonly associated with monsters or social outcasts. It turns out that it's all a quirk of their first strip. When the players ran, the sail-like collars and loose fit meant that the strips would billow out at the back, making them look like they had a humped back. I've already said that supporting your local team has a particular appeal to me, but as Fabio's Genoese, and the majority of Juve fans aren't from Turin, he'd be able to give me an insight into what it's like supporting a team from elsewhere.
as Juve have so many fans and have had so much success, and humans are human, it stands to reason that schadenfreude comes into play when they don't do well. If you'll forgive me for using research and science again, but always other people's, in 1976 empathy researchers Dolph Zillman and Joanne Cantor proposed something called disposition of mirth. Zillman summed that up by saying, A recent investigation of empathy has revealed that mishaps are, in fact, only appreciated when they happen to resented people. Cristiano Ronaldo missing a penalty? Brilliant fun, and probably giving us a bit of dopamine to boot. Zillman argued that the reverse was true as well. When you like someone and they succeed, you rejoice. But if they fail or someone you don't like succeeds, you feel miserable. Everyone loves the underdog, after all. Of course, Germans are light years ahead of the curve on this with the concept of schadenfreude, which, although it's frequently stated that there isn't an English word for this, once upon a time there was, and I don't know the pronunciation, epicaricacy, though this ended up going the way of the dinosaurs. This isn't a generally accepted feeling in society. Laughing at someone else's misfortune is shunned. But in sports, this isn't the case. The more successful a club becomes, the more detractors it attracts. Ten years ago, Manchester City were seen as lovable losers by most people who weren't United fans. Fast forward to today, and they're seen as being just as unlikable as Chelsea, even if they play lovely football at times. Or think about the ABE, Anyone But England, t-shirts that you can find in Scotland before any World Cup or European Championship. At any other time, not liking the English isn't cool at all. But when it comes to these competitions, a lot of Scots, myself included, can't wait to see England's brave warriors sent home in failure. My favourite afternoon in a pub of all time was watching Germany beat England 4-1 in the 2010 World Cup in an old man pub in Edinburgh. Not only did England lose and have Frank Lampard's goal ruled out, but they lost against Germany. Again, I was full of schadenfreude, dopamine, and less scientifically, Guinness. It's variable too. Against your strongest rivals, your schadenfreude maxes out. A narrow victory will get you celebrating, while a narrow loss will get you down, although you'll be able to move past it quickly enough. But a crushing defeat or victory will make you lose the plot. That's what a study by Mina Chikara from Princeton University found. For example, in the days after the one of the too many times that Hearts have beaten Hibs 1-0, their fans might raise a smile and give their high B friends a hard time. But after the Jambos won the Scottish Cup final 5-1 a few years ago, their fans were gloating unbearable twats. Some of them still are. They were high on a combination of dopamine, schadenfreude and an unsustainable business model. Oh, that last one might be my revenge schadenfreude. This schadenfreude, or if you prefer the more scientific sounding disposition of mirth, is a fundamental part of sport, or at least of being a supporter. Just as stadia and teams give people a chance to behave, for good or bad, in ways that aren't normally accepted in other parts of society, so they give us an excuse to post endless Facebook updates and memes of matches that our rivals have lost, again exercising that part of ourselves that isn't usually socially tolerated. Leaving signs in the bitter memory of seeing my friends happy behind, my second attempt at going on the stadium tour coincided with a potential for satisfaction for any non-gobby. Figuring that going for a weekend match would find me stuck in a never-ending queue like on my first trip, I tried to be cute on my return to the Juventus Stadium. I went on a Thursday before the Europa League semi-final match against Benfica. 
I was at the stadium for lunchtime, thinking that I'd be able to see the stadium pretty quickly, seeing as the game was at five past nine. I was wrong. Once again, the south of Italy had temporarily migrated to a shopping centre on the outskirts of Turin, determined to stand in front of me in a queue. At least this time there were tickets available when I eventually made it to the counter. The only snag was that the tour that I was booked onto wasn't due to start for another two hours. Still, I'd come that far, I wasn't going to give up. After killing those two hours, it was time to wander around with the rest of the herd. It's an impressive stadium, and although everyone else on the tour was much more excited than I to see the changing rooms, they stopped to take photos of everything. It was pretty cool when we stepped out from the executive lounges into the tribuna. From inside, the stadium looks really small, despite it holding 40-odd thousand people. There was also a lack of fencing, which is pretty unusual here. They make up for that with an extensive network of CCTV, and although on the whole it was very impressive, everything seemed to be a bit sanitised. When it's heaving during a match, I dare say it feels more organic, but as it was, it just left me a bit cold. Stadia like Juve's are the future, as they follow the English model of capitalising on their addicted customer base, but it's not a future that I look forward to. Of course, the club aren't interested in my opinion. They're much more interested in the money-making potential of a modernised stadium. The tour that I was on, which was the most expensive tour available, only the best for me, cost €25. There were 60 people in my group, and a new tour left every 15 minutes. The guide said that last year, 150,000 people had done the tour. If you take 150,000 times 25, you can see they're raking it in. And at this rate, with the amount of money that the club can generate, they'll have a good chance of dominating Serie A for the next few years. It will mean that Fabio and his pals will be kept happy, while the Schadenfreude dopamine activators for Juve's detractors might have to wait a bit for their next big hit. The good news is that when it comes... It'll probably be a memorable one. Epicaricaris, epicaricaris.